Hello and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 117 and today's episode, My Daughter and Neurodiversity, I'm in conversation with my gorgeous, gorgeous daughter, Catherine, who will share her experience of her neurodiversity journey. I'm recording this introduction after we've had the interview and I'm just so proud of her courage and bravery, really. We'd been talking about whether she was happy to have that conversation because I get asked a lot around this notion of neurodiversity. So there will be another episode that will look very specifically at strategies that we can adopt as parents to kind of help and support our children in that neurodiversity. But I thought it was important to initially share, and Catherine was really happy to do this, her personal experiences and kind of neurodiversity from her lens. So I do hope you love and you enjoy this episode and well done, my gorgeous girl. And it would be really helpful if you want to give us some feedback as to what the conversation that I've had with her, what that raises in terms of questions for you before we record the episode with my tips and strategies. So we make sure that we cover that. So there is no give for this particular episode. It's just simply that conversation. But as ever, if you enjoy this episode, I would love it if you could follow and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time, here's my gorgeous girl, Catherine. Come to the podcast and to a slightly different um, podcast with a slightly different take. I have the best and most amazing daughter here with me. My daughter's here with me. Catherine, welcome. It's lovely to be here. I'm used to listening to this in the car, so it's strange to be sat here. Oh, but no, quite genuinely, it's really... I'm very grateful that you're here. So I mean, I guess maybe let me set the context of why... So I had, basically, I had a conversation with Catherine um, and asked her if she was happy to come onto the podcast and talk about her kind of her story, her journey with parents, for parents really, um, who've been asking me a lot around this idea about neurodiversity. So Catherine, I'm not going to say anything necessarily. I'll I'll let you sort of start and and kind of share your story. Well, I kind of knew from a young age that I was a bit odd, a bit different. I mean, there was obviously bits bits that just like were pointed out that wasn't really something that like everyone had experience with I would say something and everyone would kind of look at me and think that's not really what the rest of us do or that's not really something that we're kind of used to I'm very good at keeping stuff organized to a sense um I have a lot of order in my life I follow the same routine my hair gets washed the same way each day it's very very specific (laughs) and and then I think I told that to someone when I was quite young and they kind of looked at me in this whole, I don't really follow the set order. So I knew from a young age that something was not odd, I odd maybe the wrong but word. But you felt different. I felt different and there was just a different way that I did things and you know, growing up and then you're getting older and meeting people with different life experiences. It was just, I just kind of assumed, that oh, this is just a, the way that I do it. Everyone has their own way of doing it. Mine isn't wrong. It's just different to other people's. And then I was in therapy for some anxiety that I was having at university and obviously we'd had a conversation about potentially being autistic and I was in therapy and my therapist said oh well why don't you look at getting diagnosed I went oh but I'm happy where I am I don't really need a label like if I am I know I'm slightly different and then over the coming weeks and months I thought it'd actually be quite nice to get that firm 
diagnosed. It's not because I wanted to use it as an excuse for anything or be like, oh, I can't do that because I'm because I have it. But it's more just to get that clarification of maybe the reason why I felt odd wasn't me being weird. It was something that it's hard to explain. It's yeah. hard to explain. It's Can I take that. you back then, Catherine, before we kind of mm. talk around the diagnosis yeah. thing? Because that's that I think that's probably that's quite a really interesting kind of discussion in itself. Mm. But this noticing that you were doing things different or that that you were odd so did you did other people make you feel different when you made those comments or did you notice I guess I'm thinking from a parent's perspective when they're sort of looking at their child because I think what's uh, what I would probably point out is that um is that when we're talking about neurodiversity, it presents itself very differently for girls mm. as it does for boys. Um, and there was never once was a comment ever made when you were at school or any suggestion no. that your behaviour was different. But you clearly felt different. And can you, what were the sort of I things? Mean, so obviously, it's obviously different from when I was a teenager to when I was tiny, but I remember in primary school. Obviously, you'd go out to play time and everyone would be like doing these imagining games. Everyone was really easy about getting into character. And I always felt I just could never really do it because I never really got it. I was like, oh, yeah, you can play this person. I'm like, I don't really get that. I'm not really kind of... And friends were like, they're, oh, my girlfriends like slip into it really easily. And I'm just kind of still now. So I think I, I could do it, but it just took a lot more effort or I literally just have to pretend to be pretending. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I can do it, I can do it, yeah, I'm feeling it. And I just could never really get to that level. Right. And then I'd be sat in the classroom and it was always just a slightly strange experience being sat there and everyone's doing stuff in maybe the order that, you know, the teacher's been teaching it. But I know for myself, I have a slightly varied way of getting to that answer. And I think when people then used to look at my work, it would always look a little bit different, a little bit hashed or a little bit rushed because people would be thinking, well, that's not how the teachers taught us. That's how I've maybe got to that conclusion. Yeah. Which maybe a couple of people then looked at and were like, oh, that's, that's a bit strange. But then I can't say, oh, well, it, just, it might just mean me getting it wrong or I just have a weird way that worked. So that's interesting then. So you noticed it in the imaginative creative play that people, mm. that, that, and I guess as a girl with yeah. other girls who would then get massively into the flow of things. Yeah. And then you notice it then academically because you would approach questions in a particular way? Yeah, it was more just a case of stuff like times tables, stuff like maths equations where people would maybe find it quite difficult. The questions where it would be a longer phrased question of, oh, I don't know, Betty has this many, someone has this many. I always then used to take, okay, look, this, this, this very like mathematical approach. And I had a lot of friends that struggled with that. So when I reached the answer quicker, a lot of people can be like, how did you get there so quick? And it was always, I used to be well, it was always quite simple. And so people would look at me and go, it's not simple it's not to right, me. Yeah. But I mean, there was even instances with like friends and sleepovers, um, where obviously like you go to the house and like sleepovers and stuff and all the girls would like be doing in their own groups. And it was just feeling a bit on the out. There was nothing wrong. It just, I, I just assumed that everyone sort of felt like that. But again, growing up, I learned that that's probably not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Did it, was it a big part of your growing up when you think about, because obviously it's very, once you get the diagnosis and we'll talk mm. about that, but once you've got the diagnosis 
actually, why don't we talk about what is what is the diagnosis? We, we keep talking about these things. What was yeah. the diagnosis that you were there for that once you went through the process that you were given? Right, so obviously fill out a load of like questionnaires. They ask you kind of a range of questions and you know, do you like putting things into categories, agree, disagree? And then as I went through them and marked it off, I suddenly realised that oh, a lot of this stuff that I do is just on these questionnaires. And I went back through one of my diagnoses and apparently I scored 47 out of 50 and anything above a 32 is strong, is a strong indication for autism. Um, but no, so my main diag obviously diagnosis was ASD and then I had ADHD on the side, like accompanying, which I never really anticipated, but apparently it's like 40% of ASD get ADHD on the side. And then now I look back on stuff that maybe I wasn't aware of being ADHD, like my love, her mum can attest to this, it does annoy my mum, of having two screens on at once when I do work at university, I have my laptop screen and then an iPad going for some background noise. I just never knew that was a classic ADHD symptom until I got told. And then I got the diagnosis and it was a bit of a weight lifted off my shoulders. It was like, oh, these things that I do, all these categories and my love for order and the fact that I wash my hair the same every day in my shower, it's... It's not odd, it's just the way that I'm wired. Yeah, and I think that that was, for you, was actually quite a huge relief, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, maybe other people in the family are a bit more, not sporadic, but the way they do things. And for me to kind of, I have a real issue with, like, spontaneity and, like, spontaneous plans. And to know that it isn't necessarily just me as a person. I've got something, not that I'm trying to put it off on that, but there's a slight reason why I'm, not the best with certain things it was just a big relief to kind of know it's oh okay it's yeah. not just me being an issue there's something that's there well let's yeah and that is uh, let's talk about the diagnosis and uh, and i'll kind of qualify a few things here so Catherine's primary diagnosis is asd autistic spectrum disorder and um, you know which is obviously this notion that most of us are more familiar with with this idea about neurodiversity um, what Catherine also has, so her primary, the main presenting diagnosis is ASD, but for girls who have ASD as a primary diagnosis, there is a 40% chance that they are also ADHD. And for you, your ADHD is not in the same way that you might typically expect someone with the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, because your hyperactivity comes very much from your thought processes doesn't it so rather yeah, than it not, being pinging off the walls and bouncing around it's actually much more to do with it's thoughts a, yeah it's more like the craziness of my thoughts and jumping from one thing to the next and yeah like the multiple screens it's having that like attention being everywhere as opposed to that classic what most people think of almost adults think of when they hear the word ADHD which is a child bouncing off the walls yeah and we will just you know uh, we will be covering in a very in a separate podcast episode I will be covering very specific details about ASD and ADHD and behavioral strategies and how we can support the people well, how we can support our children but I just thought that this was a great opportunity to talk mm -hmm. to someone firsthand about this now obviously Catherine's diagnosis came you're 20 now yeah Six months ago, so I was 19, 19 and a half technically when I got it. Yeah, let's talk about the diagnosis because, um, we're being completely honest. When Catherine talked about wanting to have the diagnosis, as I have very openly and honestly say, I'm not always a big fan mm -hmm. of having the diagnosis. Quite often, you know, 
you know, I'm a massive supporter where parents need the diagnosis in order for their child to receive the support that they need educationally. Um, but that I have a very strong belief that quite often a diagnosis can then end up becoming self-fulfilling. So we had, yeah, we had an honest conversation about it. And I think for me, it was more important for me to get it on paper, not as so I can point at it and use it as an excuse. Oh, I can't do that because, but to get that, oh my God, I'm not the odd one out. There are other people that have the same, like expressions that have the same that I've one of my best friends has ADHD and ASD, so it's nice to find that person and realise that, oh God, it's not just me who feels like there are other people that can feel like this. But no, we did have a discussion about, yeah, we obviously, I think you suspected as I got older and most recently with obviously just me getting older that ASD was probably going to come up. Yeah, as a but it, and it was, and actually what I would say is from a family perspective and be interesting for your comment on this, mm is that I think the diagnosis actually helped everybody. It wasn't just you, because I think... Yeah, it helped in terms of kind of... It's hard to explain, but realising like, to other members of family, to you, to my brother, that the way that I do things and the way that things get done, I when I come in, like cleaning the house, cleaning the kitchen, tidying my room, I make my bed the same, that... You know, something that for you, if maybe you came in and like moved my bed or made it in a different way, for you it's like, oh, it's just it's just making your bed in a different way. But for me, it's that it throws up so many things that I then can't explain. And then to have it, to have the diagnosis and go to check with my brother, but like, <laughs> when you come in and mess up my bed, it really does trigger me to another level. <laughs> just please, it was just nice to then have that clarification. You know, this is this is the reason why I do the things that I do. I'm not just yeah. And I think actually what's then happened is that your brother has responded to you with a lot more understanding. Definitely. I think there's been a lot of, there's been a mutual understanding of, oh, okay, she's not just doing this because she's trying to be botanical. She's trying to get me in trouble. She's doing this because it's just the way that I work or the way that I choose to live. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those um, overwhelming triggers because i know i've almost i'm almost certain i know some of the things that are going to come up and i'm i've literally opened paved the way for myself to be utterly slaughtered but i think it's i think it's really important that we talk about some of these things i think also for parents as well from a parental perspective you know if you do something small that you might not realize but if you have a child with diagnosed or like isn't diagnosed something small that you do can have a massive repercussion on the child that you just don't think of and it's not because you did it maliciously it just happens. I remember there was one time there's a there's a there's a chair in my room and that was like the perfect angle for me to like walk in and put my bag down. I think I was at university and I think you moved it to an old nursing chair that I had. And I walked in and it was a really weird experience of trying to explain to someone. And I walked in and I just broke down in tears. And it wasn't because I was trying to be spoiled or like, oh you moved something in my room, but it was that, oh my god, there's change. Okay, we're just, just going to ride it through. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. And obviously, like, naturally, I've just loved to deal with it. And just like, oh, it's there. But something small. And you're like, yeah, I just I just moved the chair in your room. It's like... And that's... Okay, so I think that that's something that we ought to kind of talk mm. about. So for you... Now, obviously, ASD presents very differently. Can present very differently with girls. And we will cover this, I promise you, in a separate podcast episode. But talk to... Kind of 
we go back to some of the things and I have done many things to screw up my kids but there are some very specific things that I have done and again you know not deliberately but have had a massive impact on and really spiked Catherine's anxiety levels because I've just done them without any kind of thought to how that might impact her um but talk explain what for you in terms of the diagnosis for the ASD and also the ADHD where do your challenges lie where where are you most having you know the things that you're having to work on regularly so one thing I can think of straight off the bat for the ADHD is leaving things to the last minute not because I can't do them but to motivate me I need a sense of urgency sometimes to do things equal I know there's a common I think it's called like time blindness where you you know, you're sat there thinking, oh, I've got ages, I've got ages. And then you're realising, oh my God, let's say I've got 10 minutes to get ready. And then you're suddenly trying to rush and you don't realise that the time you have isn't the time enough. And I'm trying to work on that. Like when I leave the house or when I'm, tr- a classic is when I'm trying to do uni assignments is trying to get it all done and completed and proofread and sent by a deadline that I'm happy with. Because obviously then ties in for me with the ASD. It's I've set obviously high goals for myself and trying to kind of reach those consistently and then not get myself tripped up by the ADHD. It's like a double-edged sword. It's like my room, I love to have order, but below that order, it's just mess sometimes, which is then it's hard to then have that balance of trying to have the order that I like, but I'm naturally slightly messy. So it's trying to deal with those two conflicting emotions. Yeah. Oh my God. Massively. And I'm guessing the, from a parent's perspective, what you might be seeing with a child with ADHD is constantly leaving things to the last yeah. minute. And it's not because obviously like we're too lazy to do them, but it's sometimes I, I can speak in first words, I don't get motivated to do something until it is like the last possible time. But equally as mum can say, I like to equally get stuff done very far in advance. I can be too far in advance. So I've never found a middle ground. I'm kind of always too late or too early is that how it feels with the diagnosis because you know what i've observed of you with the asd is that your that your anxiety is at its worst when you feel that you're out of control and you know things are being forced upon you you know you talked about spontaneity Mm. things are last minute things are changing you know my changing the chair in your bedroom it's I think, yeah, for me, it's my big issue is change in my life. I've never really been good with change. And, you know, see if I've, if something's been said and it's like, oh, say a lecturer said, right, this, this assignment's going to be due in in a week. I'm like, great, I'll get it done for that week. And then lecturer's like, oh, no, 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 we've got another week to do it. I then really struggle with that sort of, you told us we had to do it this week, so I've put everything on hold to get this done, which means I've put... And it then triggers a lot of emotions that I maybe can't control. And I know, I mean, I, growing up, I've always been tearful. Like, just if anything happens, I just burst into tears. And it's something that I can't really control. It just kind of, it just happens. It's bubbling up. It's like, oh God, oh God, like I can't control it. And so trying to explain that to a parent who maybe doesn't really, it's like, oh, why are you crying all the time? It's like, but it, it's not something I choose to do. It's not something that I wake up in the morning, oh, I'm going to cry when my chair gets moved or when this uni assignment gets moved or when I'm told something for dinner and then it gets changed, it's not something that we do as a malicious thing. It just happens and it's that whole massive wave of emotion. I can sense it coming and it's like, oh my God. Is it also a release though? Once you've cried, do you feel, does it help at all or not at all? Not 
really personally again obviously it may be different for everyone else but i personally don't get that release from that i get the release from other stuff if that's literally just going out and just literally just like screaming at nothing that's to get my release um it is yeah it's i think it's just deeply personal for everyone but no i don't get my release through crying i don't have to cry get the at least the emotion out and then if i've got rage or anger or something bubbled inside me i need to do something else to calm myself whether that be watching a film going on a drive which is i know some people can think oh you're just lazy you're just watching films it's like no but that's my way of releasing all that tension and going okay right happy i'm back in the zone again i can come back to a new mindset yeah so okay so there's that so there's a control thing mm. there's that um also that other flip side that you have with the um with the adhd which has you leaving assignments and not mm. well actually it, do, it doesn't have you leaving assignments to the last minute because you typically hand I in typically assignments hand early in. But I think this is where the ASD and the ADHD, like, they trip themselves up. It's that last minute procrastination. But then I tell myself it's last minute if it's not done a week before it's due. Right. But I don't know whether that comes from just me in school and what my schools have taught me or whether that's come from being autism. It's just I just have a set need to do things. Again, set need <laughs> to do stuff, like, in a particular way. So when something happens or something changes... Like with the university, it's a little bit easier to control because you're left on your own a little bit more. But I mean, back at school, if we're talking like primary school, secondary school, GCSEs and A-levels, there are plenty of times I could count where I had a, I was flying very close to the wire to literally bursting into tears in a classroom. Yeah. But, yeah just... Let's talk about some of the other things that I've done that have monumentally triggered things for you because I have done... Quite a few when we think about it. Yeah, there's a couple that's springs in mind. Go on, Catherine. Um, full permission. I will, I will do one that mum, <laughs> that mum knows. I think that mum's been made aware of. Um, I think I was at university in first year. It was in my second term. And so about like March time. And I think you were out of the country. And I, I come home to look after Coco. And I was back at uni. I was like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> I can relax. I'm at uni. And then I got a message from mum going, um, what are you doing next week? I was like, for how long? She's like, a week. I was like, why? I was like, oh, like, um, Coco needs to be looked after. And I was like, I'll help. I'll come home. And I remember kind of coming home feeling a little bit angry, kind of being like, oh, you know, like, how long have you known? And I was like, a couple of days. I was like, it's fine. Let it go, Catherine. Let it go. You're home. You're with Coco. You're in the lovely countryside. Just Breathe. But it's last but, minute changes. But it's last isn't minute it? changes, last yeah. minute plans that get thrown in, and then I just go into a bit of haywire. I like to plan. I have four diaries. I have a pa- two paper ones. I have a monthly one, a weekly one, my phone, and then I have a separate diary. It's it's a lot. To deal and with. that control thing, that aspect of control, really soothes your anxiety, doesn't it? It soothes me to know that I have everything written down and it just have that control and know, okay, right, so Monday I'm doing this, this, this and this. Even down to the food that I'm making on that day. Uh, for example, one way I've learned to kind of manage it is now I do click and collect through Tesco's on the university and it is the best thing because I can just calm. I know everything's there. I know everything that's then in my fridge. I then know what's for dinner and it's that utter need for control, yeah. which is very nice. 
which is and that and that is a quite a typical sort of aspect of that ASD. Talk. Let's talk about. I, I've, I. I'm so surprised that you did not push me under the bus about your toy car collection. I have completely. <laughs> have you forgot? I honestly thought you were gonna. Well, there was. Go on, Catherine, spill the beans. <laughs> but this is one instance I will say to mum that I don't think I will ever forgive her for. But we had this box, this crate. Obviously, I had lots of toys growing up. But I had these toy cars from the movie cars, like little Hot Wheels sized cars. Massive crate of them. And for whatever reason, whatever excuse, whatever, they got taken to the dump one day. And yeah, I was, I was not happy. I'm still a little bit hurt. But that was. I can't remember my reaction now, as in I can't remember exactly how I acted, but I was obviously upset. Yeah. But I, there isn't like an immediate response that springs to mind. But one thing about those toy cars that mum can attest to that I've still done later in life is used to put me to bed. So I'd go to sleep, I'd, I'd go lay in bed, and I said, This crate lived in my room, and I'd get up. And I would order them in perfect grid order. Sometimes by colour if I was feeling extra adventurous. You did them in colour. Colour. <laughs> and then I would just fall asleep. Sometimes next to the cars or sometimes back in bed. And then even now when we're playing board games, we were playing Risk a couple of months back. And obviously like, you have the soldiers in the game and you have the ones on the side. And I just line them up. Perfect grid order. And it's just, it's even down to those sort of things. I need to have it at least logically yeah. done in my for my brain to kind of <laughs> we can breathe yeah and I think that that and that's a really important kind of aspect to kind of that we didn't necessarily you know I, I certainly remember when you were younger it was quite marked that I would go into your bedroom at night and that you had you know emptied your cars and you'd put them in in color order or you they were always in some form of grid whether they were color or just some other factor that you'd block, you'd grid mm. them by, and then you'd get back into bed. So there, you know, in lot, there's so much in hindsight that we could have retrospectively yeah. said, okay, there were some indicators there. But I think what's crucial from a parent's perspective is that that I have a real need for, you know, clutter-free living, and so my, you know, decluttering your bedroom when you were younger would would have was massively unsettling to you it because was, that took yeah. away familiarity where things were, knowing where they were. Because even if my room was messy, like even now my room's slightly messy, I could tell you where any given thing is within like this. It's it's that sort of unsettling. And I know that obviously you had to grow up with it. You obviously had to deal with this for me. You know, obviously if you go on holiday and you get kind of like trinkets and stuff, finding that stuff very hard to throw away. Again, it means to be, oh, you know, it's just clutter, just bin it. But it's that emotional tie to it, which I think a lot of, parents maybe don't always understand where the child is there's probably a deep emotional tie to it that they like having so taking that away even if it's just a simple piece of ribbon that ribbon obviously came with something or means something to that child so it's not just a simple ribbon to them it's a lot more yeah and that has it that has a lot that has a huge amount of meaning and so I think the way that it's managed now is I just I think probably from about I don't know at what age I just stopped going into your not that I stopped going into your room but your room and how it was organized and what went where was entirely yours and even if I didn't like Probably from about let's say 11 12 onwards it was kind of a bit more okay this is your room as long as you keep it tidy it's up to you how you deal with it just keep stuff off the floor <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah. yeah so okay so That's that was a 
and and that's really important to kind of understand to kind of know talk a little bit Catherine around the kind of the social side because one of the real classic aspects of ASD um is around sort of social anxiety and that does impact whether you're male or female that's that's a classic and it's universal part it's something that I am very very aware of and I have I am aware of it as growing up is obviously in your primary school you have lots of friends and then as I moved to secondary school I, I went into the secondary school and it was amazing I loved it but I never clicked with the people the people I never got with and for me it was hard to kind of branch out and try and maybe understand it from their perspective of where they were coming from and so I, I moved school and thought, okay maybe if I just moved school it would be different and I formed a really good group with the school that I moved to and then as I got older I never really gravitated towards large groups but even now I have very I've a few very close friends and and then when I went to university because my university is quite small and because the nature that I am I don't really drink because it's that whole out of control thing then trying to make friends in that way it is incredibly hard like at university I probably only have a couple of friends that I'm close with and I think again it's it's upsetting to me sometimes when I think about it but I know that the friendships I have are ones I've spent a lot of time cultivating we're both very good friends and they get me so they know that it's that and, I, and one of, of my friends I, I laugh and joke about she's also autistic and so we get each other on that sort of level like she can call me at three o'clock in the morning and she she'll know that I'll pick up but it's that sort of, we've got that extra close bond, I think, because I think autistic people naturally tend to stick together. <laughs> we naturally tend to just, get, naturally tend to just kind of click. But it is it's something that I am aware of, and I'm trying to get better and put myself into more social situations where maybe I'm not so comfortable. But again, it's the whole, you know, you want to push yourself, but you, you don't want to run from something that you're absolutely terrified of. Yeah, and that's quite, and that's probably where we're at at the moment, isn't it? Mm. We have, you know, if we're being honest, we're having yeah. conversations around your tendency to avoid certain situations that you feel uncomfortable mm. in because you can't control them. And social situations are a massively that unpredictable. It's unpredictable. I, I, I said this to a friend the other day. I've been doing it for years, but she hasn't noticed when I go into a restaurant or if I go into anywhere new, even if. Not so much if I've been there before. I will get someone to walk in before me. I will open the door. Oh no, no, no! After you, and I told my friend this. She went, "I've been noticing you've done that, but I never really clocked as to why I did." And I said, "Well, it's because I don't like walking in first. It's that anxiety. It's that feeling vulnerable. If I get someone to go in before me, I'm fine." And very it's small stuff like ordering stuff off a menu. I'm still very nervous. I don't like really speaking to waiters. I get that a lot of anxiety. So you obviously sometimes help with that. I mean, not helps, and you make the anxiety worse. But you help order, <laughs> you help order, and it's it's hard to explain maybe to parents and everything. Oh, you know, the child's just a bit, and so it's there's reasons because the child maybe finds it so triggering and so nervous. And I know classically is if I've maybe gone for lunch with a friend or I've gone to recently I went to see Barbie with a friend. The day after, I need to just decompress. I need that day by myself. Even if I'm going out and doing something, I go to the gym, going to a car show. As long as I'm doing something that I like, I then need that to recharge my batteries. I'm very introverted. So to do like lots of people day after day, it's not something that I'm, I've been gifted with. If I need to recharge my batteries, I do it in myself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you see, because I say that just because you said, you know, 
gifted. Do you see your your diagnoses as a limitation, as something that restricts you? Or do you see it as just part of who you are? I mean, I think in some ways it's a double-edged sword. I think a lot of people, if you look at it as a, it's going to limit you, you will only think of it as, oh, I'm autistic, okay, I'm, I'm limited. But if you take that and flip it and go, okay, maybe I'm not the best at social situations, maybe I'm not the best at this, but you know what, I've got a half decent memory, I'm good at making things ordered, I'm good at planning things. If you use your strengths, and if you find out what your strengths are, so my strengths will be different to someone else who's autistic strengths, if you find out what they are and capitalise on it, that's where you'll no longer feel like it's a bad thing. Yeah. Obviously there are things, I mean, we sat around the dinner table and I think I made a comment and I everyone kind of went silent. and I was like, is, is that... Is that when my autism, if I tripped up, <laughs> like, and Charlie, my brother was like, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, right. So every now and again, the social cues I do need someone to kind of be like, can't say that, don't say that. That's not. But like, that's not appropriate right now. But most of the time, I don't really see it as a bad thing. Yeah. But what, when you, I mean, and, and this was genuinely not scripted, the answer that you gave around, you know, about it, you know, looking at your strengths and other mm. things... I mean, that you couldn't get a more sort of authentic and, oh God, that sounds so cliche. What word am I looking for? But that, that you, know, you couldn't have said it any better in terms mm. of an, an ideal as a parent who has a child who has these diagnoses, how they, it's the absolute ideal mindset. And it's I, taken me a long time right. to get there. And it's obviously, there's been obviously a lot of support from you and from Charles and everyone. So from a, from a child's perspective, who's looking back at it, to have that support from the parent going, okay, right, you may be, you know, you're not the best with change, but you're really good with this. And obviously not diminishing what you can do well in, and not saying, right, let's only focus on what you're doing well in, but learning to integrate that back into maybe the things that you're not so good with. So, okay, you don't really like change, Catherine, but how about we plan what's going to happen with this change? And using your advantages to help your disadvantages from a child's perspective, that's been the best. That's been amazing because you're using your strengths against something that you know your weaknesses. So yeah. from me, obviously talking to parents, I would say, find out, obviously, try and find out what your child's strengths are and then try and incorporate that into maybe the challenges. And what's celebrating those yeah. those things. And um, but as you say, and I think what I would what we would kind of stress more than anything else is that it's, this isn't an overnight thing. No, it's, it really is. It's, uh, it takes a lot of time. I'm still working out what triggers me and how to deal with it. I'm still dealing with it. It's not something that you're just going to wake up and be like, oh, right, sorted. <laughs> I can get on with my life. It is something that just takes a lot of time, a lot of searching. And yeah, I've still not got all the answers. I still burst into tears every now and again when something gets changed. <laughs> But obviously, I'm not changing anything because I'm not going into your room. But yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Catherine, I want to say such a massive thing. I mean, we could talk and talk and talk yes. and maybe we'll have you back on um, and uh, talking about other bits. Particularly, I think the work that you're working on, I think that would be a great thing to share because yeah. you are working on that social anxiety, aren't you? Yeah, and it's... So for me, it's putting myself into social situations that I'm not comfortable in but using what I am comfortable in so I'm very comfortable around cars and funny I love mine I'm you know Formula One so learning to maybe push myself but within the limits of something that I know so it's for me it's just okay right you know I'm not comfortable maybe going to a restaurant and eating by myself 
but I'll go to a car show by myself. It will challenge me, but it will also give me a bit of comfort knowing that I'm around people who ultimately are like me and they both like cars. Yeah, so it's that it's it, you know it's what I, I talk about as this sort of scaffolding, isn't mm, it? Because the yeah. scaffold is the the thing your strength and something that you feel really comfortable with, but that you've then got the unfamiliarity piece. Yeah, because the social side. I think obviously it's hyperfixation with ADHD. It's something that you like you love and you've got that complete fixation on. So for me, cars, Formula One, using that to my strength, and you know pushing the boundaries with that. That's helped me massively. Yeah. The hyperfixation will be part of the ASD. Ah, ASD, ADHD. But part of the ADHD um, ADHD will be much more related to the sort of the difficulties around focus and attention and um, and, uh, pinging from one thought to another. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it's tricky to live with sometimes. You're in the middle of something, it's like, oh, let me go do this. And then you come back, it's like, oh, I was halfway through something and I've just completely left it. How do you manage some of that, that sort of pinging from one thing to the next? Because when I first got my diagnosis, I did try medication. I can't, Albanese, Albanese, something. Yeah. And it did help with. The thick, with the attention and literally if I would sit down if I would focus on something I remember I did an assignment that was due in 10 weeks I did the first part of it and I was like well wow this medication actually does work but the side effects of it was I got a massive amount of increased anxiety like my anxiety will come and go in waves and I've learned to kind of oh, you can just, you can just ride the wave out and the medication made the anxiety just hit like a freight train I couldn't stop it which worried me Ironically, worried me a lot. So I was like, I'll come off the medication. And it stopped instantly. So, but dealing with like the focus, it's just trying to eliminate, funny enough, trying to eliminate distractions, but also realizing that sometimes what other people class as distractions, I need. So when I'm, even if I'm just by myself, I have to have some sort of music, background noise on. If I'm cooking, one weird thing to help me cooking is having just a TV show running in the background, even if I'm not paying attention to it just hearing that but equally if someone's in my kit if someone's in the kitchen and two people are talking I can't stand that it's like no I need you to to leave it's just finding out what works I think for you yeah and the the medication thing was quite an interesting one because Mm. um I had sort of said I really didn't you asked my opinion and I said, uh, having worked with a lot of children that have been on ADHD medication, obviously you were, you were an adult at the time, you were an adult when you got your um, diagnosis, was that I was very much of the view... So I wanted that, to at least try it, because if I tried it and obviously it didn't work out, I could at least say, well, I've, at least I've, I've done something about it. And I'm actually also trying to find more natural routes um, and like some more, not homemade, but a bit more kind of what I can do at home to see that... But I, I did try the medication and there was just a, too many negatives that outweighed the positives. So I think one thing I think was loss of, because it was helped with binge eating, it would then wipe out my appetite. And I must not going to test. I do like to eat. I'm a very big foodie. We all like to eat. <laughs> big foodie. And so having that wiped out, I was a bit like, oh, like I could get, if I took it about eight o'clock in the morning. I could easily go to about three, four and go, I've not eaten anything today. I can have an apple but I'm stuffed. I really I really don't want to eat anymore. And then it would wear off quite late. So I go to it was just it was a culmination of factors I went, I think I'm For you it didn't work. For me, 
I, I don't need yeah. that. But for other people, I know I've got friends at university that take ADHD medication and it works a treat. I think it just depends on the person. Yeah, and I and we'll cover that in the separate uh, in kind of a, another podcast episode. Uh, Catherine, thank you, my lovely. Um, yeah, really grateful for your honesty, and I hope that for anyone listening, that they, this is a, a sort of helpful perspective on it from the viewpoint of your child, really. Yeah, and there's so many other things I could talk about with terms of parents. So, for example, like food is a I could talk about that for probably about an hour about food. Well, maybe okay. we do an episode on that, just on that oh, bit. Happy. I'll talk about some safe foods. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, my lovely. One Million Moments all about? We know prevention is better than cure. Children who feel connected, heard and understood are less likely to struggle with their mental health. One Million Moments is all about seizing opportunities to connect with children moment by moment, day by day. Head over to our website one million moments.org that's o-n-e million moments.org and join the initiative join the campaign and help us positively impact one million lives